So in 2007, uh, you had a month-long distributed denial of service or DDoS cyber attack. Um, it was believed to have originated from, from Russia and it, it targeted Estonian government, banking and news media websites. It was believed to be the first ever cyber attack against a state. And while Estonia was already quite technologically advanced at the time, these attacks really represented a massive wake-up call for Estonia and for states everywhere, really. This episode focuses on in-governance, identity, and cybersecurity in a small European state, Estonia. The conversation hosted Logan Carmichael, a researcher specializing in governance and security policy in Estonia. We cover issues of governance, cybersecurity, identity, and politics, as well as foreign policy in this podcast episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. For this episode, we're focusing on Estonia, a small state yet tech giant. And we're looking at issues of technology, politics, identity, and e-governance. And today I'm happy to have here with us Logan Carmichael, a dear friend and fellow researcher. Hi, Logan. Welcome to our show. Hi, Petros. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So uh, just to get started, Logan is uh, an Auckland, New Zealand-based researcher with the particular focus on governance and security policy in Estonia. She holds a master's degree in conflict and terrorism studies from the University of Auckland, where she currently works as a professional tutor. In addition to forthcoming scholarly work on Estonia, Logan's recent work includes compiling the security profile of Estonia for the King's College London War Study Simulation on Russian Aggression. And she has been a guest lecturing at the University of Auckland on issues related to Eastern Europe. All right, so uh, let's just uh, jump right into it then. <laughs> but uh, let's also try to break it down a bit because we're looking at a very, uh, f- at least for me, it's a very fascinating topic. It's also relevant to my own research. We uh, all know more or less that Estonia is a small state in the European Union. It joined back in 2004. Now, tell us a bit more about Estonia, Logan, and with particular reference as to how it has successfully become such a pioneer in the field of e-governance and cybersecurity. Sure. Um, so to me, Estonia is, is such a fascinating place to be studying. Um, it's, it's a really small country of approximately 1.3 million people. So it's actually a population smaller than the city of Auckland, where I live, um, located um, on the shores of the Baltic Sea. Um, and there's been all sorts of, of iterations of, of deeming it sort of one of the most digitally advanced societies in the world is what UNESCO called it. It's been called the most tech savvy country in the world. And that's because it's, it's an e-governance and a cybersecurity powerhouse. It's really punching far above its weight globally compared with its really small size. Um, so I reckon it's really interesting to look at how this happened. So back in August 1991, when Estonia regained its independence from the Soviet Union, um, the country had this really incredible opportunity to sort of forge new identities on top of its, its previously existing identities and really capitalized on innovating in this emerging space that was tech at the time, really sort of a new and emerging field. Um, so in the 1990s, you had a program that was introduced in Estonia called Tiger Leap. Um, and what it did was introduce computers, the internet, and sort of education surrounding digital literacy into Estonian classrooms. And that did wonders in educating the general populace in terms of sort of technological issues. 
And then you had internet access declared a human right in Estonia in 2000, you had e-voting first used there in 2005. And you had this idea of a digital identity card that emerged in the 1990s. And it's really formed the origins of what's become e-Estonia, this sort of country's wide-reaching sort of e-governance platform, I guess, that, that's continually evolving even, even today. And so you had the remnants of what was a largely analog Soviet banking system. Um, and so because you didn't have sort of emerging banking technology, it had been a largely analog system, it, it really provided a blank state for a blank slate for Estonia to really create um, this new digitized banking system, which ultimately sort of molded into the sort of foundation of the country's e-governance. So in 2007, uh, you had a month-long distributed denial of service or DDoS cyber attack. Um, it was believed to have originated from, from Russia and it, it targeted Estonian government, banking and news media websites. It was believed to be the first ever cyber attack against a state. And while Estonia was already quite technologically advanced at the time, these attacks really represented a massive wake-up call for Estonia and for states everywhere, really. And so in the wake of these cyber attacks, Estonia um, revised its domestic legislation to account for cybercrime, really engaged in an effort of public awareness and, and education in cyber-related fields, and has emerged as, as sort of a global norm setter on cybersecurity. So today there's there's really ample literature on Estonia as this sort of ideal to be emulated both in the e-governance and cybersecurity spaces. But bigger picture, it's really remarkable to look at how this transformation has really taken place in less than, than 30 years. Such a small country that's, that's really taken proactive measures to become so digitally savvy. And I think quite possibly it's not been as evident ever as it has been in, in 2020 with the onset of, of COVID-19. You've had lockdowns across the world really presenting learning curves as you move from sort of more traditionally in-person tasks to online. And sort of inadvertently, this, this sort of technological advancement that's been ongoing in Estonia has really prepared the country in digital space, mitigating many of these difficulties that have arisen out of uh, the pandemic. So yeah, I think interesting place to be studying. Um, and yeah, lots that has un unfolded in the last last three decades. Absolutely. And you know, when I look at Estonia and then I compare it with other small European member states, um, I do see this uh, uh, this sort of uh, this massive difference, especially when, you, like, for example, when I look at Malta or Cyprus, especially Cyprus, because I come from Cyprus, and I see how the lack of an e-governance model or the lack of, uh, you know, uh, culture preparedness and uh, a proper cyber infrastructure, it has actually affected a lot of sectors, especially during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns that we've had all around Europe. Now, the um, other thing is that, as you've mentioned, in general, Estonia thrives in its e-governance model, right? And I'm very familiar as well with e-Estonia, the platform itself, and uh, how other companies and GOs, and uh, they've also set up their own platforms and they've, uh, you know, they've taken advantage of all this in a good way of uh, the online services, which also contribute towards uh, policy making and the transparency process. So this information in Estonia, it's actually widely accessible to citizens, businesses and the rest of the world. 
So yeah, when I'm looking at things like the e-governance academy, which trains officials across the region and provides for advanced services across different sectors, like uh, reliable banking, uh, that's one of the great positive things that we've uh, that we've seen in Estonia. However, uh, I've also seen other groups like uh, Transparency International, especially the local branch in Estonia, arguing that there is a serious problem in terms of providing an honest dialogue over transparency in the policy making process. So, for example, through lobbying practices. So, on the one hand, you have this openness, this uh, very true, accessible place where citizens can look at exactly what's happening. But then again, they're not directly involved in the policy making process. So, my question is, what are the implications for the current political scene in Estonia in having unregulated practices over things like lobbying, despite the country's tech success story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, Estonia has really been held up as, as a case study in e-governance because that, that model has been so successful in many ways. Um, and there's no doubt about that. And there's you know media and scholarly literature to, to back this up, suggesting that, that this model be adopted elsewhere. Um, where there isn't that same developed um, e-governance infrastructure um, that Estonia has seen. And one of the great things about the Estonian model is that it's not something that Estonia is trying to keep to itself. Um, it is something that through e-Estonia, through the, the e-governance academy, through other mechanisms that, that it is really trying to, to share, to export to other places so that other countries and NGOs um, and international forums can, can also similarly have a successful e-governance sort of structure. But in recognizing that, that this is sort of an ideal that many countries and other entities are striving to emulate, yeah, there still are gaps in the process. It's not, you know, this isn't, you know, it's done, let's call it a day, we have a perfect system. I don't think it's, it's really possible for that to exist. And so in that sense, there's still gaps in the system um, and some improvements that can be made to improve this structure and this process. Transparency, as you mentioned, is, is really only one field where there's concern. And you can look at it in a number of different ways. I mean, there's literature that suggests that with digital governance, alongside it being more efficient, greater ease of use, compared with the more traditional analog processes that you would have used in government processes, it actually is a more transparent process vis-a-vis -vis these more traditional systems of governance. But obviously, again, that's not at 100%, and there's still work to be done in that space. You know, the Transparency International concerns about transparency and lobbying in Estonia, you know, you do have disclosure of, of financial contributions, but not disclosure of lobbying required. And so for any sort of government change that includes, but is not necessarily limited to e-governance, yeah, that can absolutely have an impact. Looking beyond that in the e-governance space, I mean, there are other challenges that, that pose potential implications. You do have inconsistencies in the e-governance platforms as it's not completely uniform right across the board. Um, and so you can have discrepancies between the public and private sector, between departments within the government, discrepancies based on regions, given that the municipalities across Estonia, even though it's, it is a small country, that you can see issues arising out of the intricacies of municipalities, of the rural and urban divide, of demographics. And those can, those can cause inconsistencies within the application of e-governance that can have potential implications. So I think there's no real easy answer apart from 
you know, you do want to try to increase the communication across these differences within the e-governance processes. Um, you want to streamline processes as best as you can and increase cooperation between departments or between the public and private sector, for an example. And you really want to bridge that gap where the disconnect exists. But there's also spaces in which there is actual regulation. So there's not actually even a regulation gap as there is, say, with lobbying surrounding Estonian cybersecurity, right? After this 2007 cyber attacks, Estonia revisited a lot of its legislation to bring it into line with the new realities of cyber incursions in its country. But even despite this regulation, you know, the basic security of the e-governance services are also a potential vulnerability or an implication down the track. So you really do have risks in places that are regulated and perhaps even more, I mean, in spaces of, of sort of confidentiality, of, of privacy, of the integrity of the data that's consistent inside of these e-governance systems. You know, you need to make sure that, that these vulnerabilities or potential vulnerabilities aren't exposed. But now that Estonian systems are also being adopted elsewhere, just as an example, the X-Road system, the sort of backbone, per se, of, of e-governance in Estonia, looking to be adopted by the World Health Organization, as you then extend outside of Estonia's borders and Estonia's jurisdiction, some of these challenges are amplified and come into more gray space when they're international and outside of Estonia's space of regulation. So, you know, potential implications there. I mean, you, you had vulnerabilities that were found in approximately 750,000 ID cards back in 2017. And thankfully, those vulnerabilities were found um, before any damage could be done to those identity card holders. But there are, there are implications that can arise out of, out of these vulnerabilities. And so at the end of the day, um, I mean, Estonian President Kirsty Kaljulaita said, you know, that e-governance really needs to um, be applied in a way that's that's effective, that's that's tailored to local intricacies, that's that's accessible. Otherwise, you really run this risk of of alienation, of sort of a rejection of these e-governance practices. And I mean, this this is more in the case of of other countries adopting Estonian practices in e-governance. But it's also the case in Estonia. If you have processes that that don't work or aren't working as well as they they should. There, there are long-term implications, um, and it's important that, that these issues are addressed, so that you avoid these, these implications as best you can, so that you can sort of ensure that Estonia has this sort of continued success story in the e-governance space and, and sort of iron out these issues as they, as they arise. Mm-hmm, definitely. And uh, not only does Estonia has to uh, a lot more to learn and continue to improving, but as you've said, other countries are, uh, depending on the path they take, they are also able to learn from that uh, specific model. And it's great that you've mentioned uh, the vulnerabilities and cybersecurity, because those things are, you know, pretty much considered a norm in Estonia. Uh, I mean, for for example, the country itself hosts NATO's own cooperative cyber defense center of excellence, right? And in general, the cyber and digital infrastructure, as we've, we've continuously uh, mentioned, uh, we, we keep on mentioning is that, you know, Estonia is able through these strong infrastructure to have an impact on policy across all fields from defense to the economy to healthcare, but do you think there is a strong digital identity in Estonia in general? And if so, how 
Is this translated all across society? Is it something that people do, in fact, consider an integral part of daily life? Like, would it be different without this digital identity in Estonia? Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of two ways that you can look at digital identity as being an integral part of, of Estonia's national identity surrounding its, its digital advances. So you can sort of look at it in that capacity. Um, and also in terms of, of the, the sort of digitization of legal identity um, via the ID card. And I think to both of these ways of, of examining digital identity, I think the answer is yes. I think it's, it's integral in, in both capacities. I mean, on one hand, you know, in, in terms of branding itself, digital themes are really key in Estonia's portrayal of itself outside of the country um, on sort of this global stage and sharing its digital experience with the world, with Estonia, with, with the e-governance e academy, with um, even sort of government sites, foreign ministry, for example, portrayal of itself. It, it really portrays Estonia as being cyber and digitally savvy. And, and this sort of branding is really echoed by both the media and by scholars. You know, you see things like the most technologically savvy country in the world and, and sort of declarations like this that really pump up the digital side of Estonia as really being this key identifier. But beyond this, like th there is reason to believe that it's not just a marketing ploy or a way of, of framing Estonia globally. But I think there is reason to believe that it's also become a key part of Estonia's national sort of imagination of themselves. I mean, you have really more traditional identity components that predate uh, the Soviet occupation in Estonia that sort of centers around the culture, the music, the, the group singing, um, La Lupidu, the, the national song festival. Um, and that's sort of the more traditional part of the Estonian identity. And now tech sort of far, forms this new part of an Estonian sort of national identity. So, I mean, there's lots of ways you can dig into this, into sort of identity politics and, and sociology scholarship on this idea. But one that sort of springs to mind, Margarita Fabrikant, did, she did some uh, research on sort of variations between national identity between the three Baltic states. Um, and in a lot of ways, Estonia aligns quite closely with its neighbors, Latvia and Lithuania. But this, this tech identity is actually something that, that Fabrikant's research, for example, found set Estonia apart, even from its neighbors. When, they, when Estonians were asked about their national pride in, in science and technology, which sort of, I guess, is more of a broad umbrella term, but, but really encompasses this, this digital identity, 80% of Estonians answered that they were either very proud or somewhat proud, which was significantly higher than, than their Latvian and Lithuanian counterparts asked the same question. So I think from, from that and from, from a whole body of, of other research looking at these sorts of phenomenons, I mean, you can look at this and say, it really is a quite distinctly Estonian sort of national identity um, that revolves around this, this sort of digital advancement. Um, but on the flip side, I mean, you have digital identity as, as part of this ID card. And that's sort of being like, it's a required document in Estonia, but it, it provides legal identification, access to over 5,000 e-services that are available in Estonia. It is a required document. So you've got 98% of the population has one. 
Um, and you have estimates that that it saves, you know, five days per year of, of waiting in lines and, and the admin associated with in-person signatures when you can digitally sign. So there's all these sorts of, of added benefits of this, this ID card. And it's been traditionally quite, quite effective. And there's been heavy focus on, on the ID card itself prior to COVID, but now especially during COVID-19, um, looking at how this sort of legal identity can be digitized um, and simplified to really make life easier when you can't actually complete these tasks, these administrative tasks in person. Um, and it's something, as I mentioned, that Estonia has been exporting or attempting to export elsewhere. Um, so there's definitely a sense of pride in that, that sort of couples with, with this digital identity. And now, like not everyone is using these services on a daily basis. So in, in that sense, as you asked, it's not necessarily an integral part of, of daily life per se, um, which I guess is realistic when you think about how often you, you file your taxes or sort of complete administrative functions in relation to the government. Um, but it is widespread. Obviously, you've got 98% of the population with this card. Um, and it is strong. It's a, it's a strong system um, and perhaps even stronger during, during COVID when you know, lockdowns meant that there wasn't even an opportunity at all to complete any of these processes in person. And so this, this digital identity really, really kicked in, in terms of being able to, to complete all of the functions associated with, with the ID card and this digital identification um, became really wholly necessary. Yeah, it, it is absolutely necessary. And although it's not something that you necessarily have to deal with uh, every single day, it's very important in terms of uh, during, you know, at, at times when you're facing something like a you, like COVID. And when I compare this to Cyprus, actually, it's very funny because uh, in Estonia, so you can do file your taxes uh, with ease online, but uh, we had in Cyprus, we had to extend the, the, the deadline twice thus far because the, the people at the tax department were not able to actually be physically there to handle all this and people themselves, they, they, they couldn't really go physically there and we didn't really have, we, would, we still don't have a proper e-online system that allows you to file that directly. So that's... Uh, uh, there, there's a lot of issues there when you, you when you compare it to other countries where you you keep on seeing the the growing need of a, you know establishing platforms like this even though you know you don't get to deal with it uh, every, every single day so this is a great excuse then to jump on from digital identity to uh, identity politics. And uh, although, you know, in general, we have this idea of Estonia being a relatively free and liberal society, its political landscape, it also houses interestingly, you know, different elements. We have the uh, uh, Conservative People's Party of Estonia, or Eckert in Estonia now, and uh, which has managed to become uh, a member of a coalition government. It's part of the coalition government now following the uh, 2019 elections and its popularity has been steadily increasing over the last few years. Now, this is a party that has traditionally been described as far right in its ideology and politics. How do we uh, explain this current trend in Ekre gaining so much publicity and what sort of direction will politics in Estonia take from this point on? Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of far right and Eurosceptic political parties, which 
quite typically go quite hand in hand. Um, Estonia has actually been quite behind its neighbors who mostly had the presence of, of far-right and Eurosceptic political parties much earlier, both in just their mere existence um, in their political scenes, but also in their representation in office. That happened a lot earlier in, in other Central and Eastern European countries than it did in Estonia. I mean, the, the wider European trend that explains far-right politics followed quite closely with the sort of so-called Syrian refugee crisis. But it's sort, of, it's sort of a divergent case in Estonia where, you know, there was really only a limited number, a very limited number of refugees that were taken in by Estonia. So the sort of common European arguments didn't really stand. And so ECRA is somewhat unique in the European far-right scene in that its main other is primarily Russians, um, the Russian minority um, that comprises about a quarter of the population in Estonia and also the, the Russian Federation itself. And so when, when Estonia regained its independence in 1991, joining the EU was, was one of its key goals. You know, there was very little Eurosceptic sentiment in the 1990s because all of the main parties in the Estonian political scene were in support of Estonia joining the European Union. It was only sort of very limited fringe representation of far-right and of Eurosceptic political parties until about, about the mid-2000s. Uh, it's worth noting Estonia joined the EU in, in 2004, as you said, so it's sort of tracking where this place is on that timeline. But the parties that existed even around the time that Estonia joined the EU, they had, they had really, really limited um, electoral success, and they often just collapsed on themselves after that, that lack of electoral success. And so when ECTA was formed in 2012, it really emerged out of the ruins of, of some of the previously existing, then collapsed far-right parties and Eurosceptic parties. And it was really quite different from anything that came, came before it um, in terms of a more complete, um, sort of more formed political platform um, that didn't just focus on, on one or two particular issues, um, but sort of formed a, a more complete political manifesto. And what it also had that made it unique was a cult of personality surrounding the Helmas. Um, so Mart and Martin Helma, father and son, who effectively formed the leadership of ECNA. Um, and so both this sort of political platform and cult of personality in large part contributed to a very quick rise of ECNA's formation, to holding seats in parliament, to being part of the government coalition in a period of time that was less than a decade. Now, in terms of why ECRA has gained so much publicity, um, I mean, particularly outside of, of Estonia, as well as inside. I mean, it's, it's such a departure from the politics that, that Estonia has previously known. Um, as you said, a really sort of relatively free and liberal society. And it's the sort of liberal image that, that Estonia has been fostering since the 1990s, both as part of its efforts to gain membership into the EU and beyond, but also just more, more broadly. And because of so much of what ECRA does publicly um, is really radical and sensational. Um, I mean, recently comments about Sanamaran, the Finnish prime minister, the white supremacy symbol that, that the Helmas flashed at their swearing-in ceremony. Um, and recently you've had Mart Helma uh, making comments about the LGBTQ plus community. They're really, these are really shocking comments um, and they're attention grabbing and they're quite newsworthy. Now, that being said, um, in the last several months, we have actually seen the support base for ECRA plateau. 
it had it was a number that had been sort of steadily increasing over the last several years, but reporting in August noted that that number had actually peaked and had stopped increasing. So that's definitely something to note. Now, in light of some of the comments or actions of ACTA members, um, there have been votes of non-confidence which have failed um, because the, the government coalition of which ACTA is a part, um, it forms a majority, but there now are have been renewed calls for a breakup of the coalition um, or for another non-confidence vote in light of Mart Helma's recent comments, as mentioned, surrounding the LGBTQ plus community, suggesting that, that members of that community in Estonia should all leave for Sweden, which has obviously generated a great deal of controversy, as well as the recently announced marriage equality referendum, which also um, similarly targets uh, the same community. Now, in terms of the direction that ECRA and Estonian politics will take moving forward, there is literature to suggest that there's a correlation between the rise of the far right and financial crises. Um, we saw this with the Great Depression in 19... We saw this again with the global financial crisis of 2008. It's unclear if we're going to see the same thing with, with COVID. Um, this is something somewhat unprecedented in having a financial crisis coupled with a global pandemic. But there's also been a decrease in Euroscepticism, um, particularly with the impacts of Brexit. So you do sort of have these, these trends at odds with each other, and it's really unclear you know, how these trends will play out in the broader landscape as the economy recovers from COVID, as COVID continues to unfold. But in the Estonian case, particularly, I think, you know, the recent controversies surrounding comments made by the Helmas, particularly Mark Helma, and this sort of plateau of, of Ekra support is quite telling that this, this coalition or this, this success that, that Ekra has been enjoying may potentially be, be sort of reaching its end. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to see how all these different things are at play, right? You, we, we do see this controversy, uh, you know, Ekra and, uh, and their supporters, how they target specific groups and they marginalize them in, in such a way. They try to sort of uh, uh, goatscape uh, in a way. And at the same time, you know, on the one hand, although there's this rise of the far right, as you've said, and it's, well, the literature, as you've said, it does show this correlation uh, uh, between more populists on the, being on the rise and financial crisis. There's a couple of questions here when we look at COVID and the EU, whether there's actually a decrease or an increase in your skepticism, because let's not forget at the very beginning of this pandemic, uh, the EU is actually very slow in its response, but then, of course, it did take a lot of adequate me uh, measures and it's still taking additional measures and packages to protect other member states within the union. Now, apart from that, however, let's just talk a bit more about this coalition now and let's focus again on the EU. So we have the Centre Party being part of the coalition in Estonia, which was, it used to be critical of the EU in the past. ECRA, on the other hand, as you've rightly pointed out, they have always been, you know, more skeptical of the EU. And ISAMA, uh, which is another party, uh, part of the coalition, not so much, but it is still a member uh, of the European People's Party, and albeit a, more, a bit more conservative, it hasn't really expressed, you know, any Eurosceptic stances or opinions or whatsoever. So do you think 
uh, in Estonia specifically, do you think we might see an increase in Euroscepticism or even a call for Estonian withdrawal from the EU in the future, all things considered? So I know, you know this is probably not a very easy question to answer uh, because I've, we've already pointed out just now that there's so many different things happening at the same time, you know, COVID, uh, you know, and uh, an imminent financial crisis. But what do you think? There's a lot of, of factors at play here, as you mentioned, and I think just even looking at this this government coalition, I mean, there's there's so much going on within the political parties represented within the the leading coalition right now, and it's a coalition that's just it's it's laced with contradictions. I mean, um, as you mentioned, Isimaz is quite conservative as is Ekra, although Ekra is far more radical and, and Euroskeptic and, and Isma is not. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, in, in the 1990s and early 2000s, all of, all of the main political parties in Estonia supported es Estonia's bid for EU membership. You know, th there wasn't any official Euroskeptic sentiment there. And there's nothing to really suggest that, that Isma was Eurosceptic at all. Um, you know, in fact, the opposite, they were in support um, in their previous iteration um, as Propatria Respublica. Center, the Center Party, um, I mean, as its name suggests, is quite centrist, but it's quite not notable that traditionally its support base has been Estonia's Russian minority. And this inherently places it at odds with Ekra, whose, whose main other is Russia and Russians. And, and this generated a great deal of controversy when Center entered the negotiation talks to form the coalition in 2019. In those Rigi Kogu, the, the parliamentary elections in 2019, um, it was actually the Reform Party, a quite liberal party, more liberal than, than sort of any of, of these political parties in the coalition. Reform um, and women um, were the immediate seeming winners of the election. Reform received 34 of 101 seats in the parliament. You had a record number of women that were, were elected. And Reform's leader, Gaia Kallas, um, I mean, she received the highest number of votes for any individual in Estonia's history. So, I mean, it, it, it seemed immediately following the election like something very different was going to unfold. Um, it's also worth noting that only a quarter of eligible voters participated. So it's not a particularly great track record. But I mean, despite Kalos's efforts, you know, she was unable to, to form a coalition with, with centers uh, Yuri Ratas, who's, who's the, he was the uh, incumbent prime minister at the time. Um, and Ekra, who received approximately 18% of the votes, um, and Isma um, entered negotiation talks um, with center and ultimately formed the coalition. But I mean, for center party members, you know, and voters, it was a source of great controversy. You had center party members that that resigned in protest of the coalition with ECRA. You had one um, particular municipal member of the center party who penned an open letter to Yoriratas calling ECRA fascists. And so, I mean, it, it generated a lot of controversy on a lot of different levels. And and outside of that, I mean, the, the coalition was was not what a lot of center voters thought that they were voting for because it was such a departure from what Center had traditionally stood for in, in banding with, with ECRA. That itself was, was full of, of contradictions and controversy. Now that, that being said, ECRA's brand of Euroscepticism um, is soft Euroscepticism. So it means you know, that they're not advocating for Estonia to leave the European Union, but at the same time, they are highly critical of the EU um, and Estonia's membership in it. 
And largely, um, this is based, I mean, am among other issues, but mainly based on, on concerns surrounding sovereignty and security. So, I mean, what, what ECRE deems to be sort of a loss of sovereignty that, that Estonia has experienced um, as an EU member, they deem that unacceptable. They think that European integration has gone too far, particularly with migration, with securitization of Estonia's borders, with the presence of, of non-Estonians inside Estonia, and deem this process to be you know, undemocratic punishments for, for non-compliance with EU policy to be, to be too rigid. Um, and I think this is something that we have seen recently and are going to, to see continue to, to unfold is the recent border situation that the European Commission raised in relation to Estonia, that there was non-compliance in imposing fees for leaving the external EU land border, as well as at the same time, a lack of sufficient hate crime laws in Estonia. So the Commission's given Estonia two months to fix this to rectify the situation. But Mart Helma, who is the Minister of the Interior, as well as a key figure in, in ECRA, though no, no longer uh, stepping down as the leader, I mean, he's, he's denied the violation of Sh the Schengen Borders Code um, in the situation. And it looks like this is really going to be a potential manifestation of these ideas that ECRA has around the European Union. You know, that Estonia better serves the interest of Brussels rather than the inverse, um, that it is, you know, an undemocratic system, that, that the penalties on, on this noncompliance are unjust. Now, in their manifesto, ECRA has advocated for the Estonian government to better serve Estonia's interest in Brussels. So quite interesting about this that has been seen in other Eurosceptic political parties across EU members as well, um, is that ECRA has procured one of the seven uh, Estonian seats in the European Parliament. Um, so there is actually an opportunity for ECRA to sort of disrupt from within. Um, but in the bigger picture, no, I don't see a call for Estonian withdrawal from the EU being likely. I actually don't even see a, a rise in Euroscepticism in Estonia being likely. As it stands, the most recent Eurobarometer surveys show that Estonians are, Estonians are generally pretty happy with EU membership. Um, it's, I mean, their, their levels of satisfaction with EU membership are, are generally on par with the EU-wide average. And as, as I mentioned before, I mean, ECRA's support has, has somewhat plateaued. I mean, the events surrounding Brexit over the last several years and with the sort of finalization throughout this year, I mean, those events have kept Euroscepticism at bay elsewhere. Um, and so even though, you know, COVID playing out, the impacts are yet to be seen, all of the other indicators seem to show that Estonians are generally pretty happy with EU membership and the process of European integration. And I, I just don't foresee that going anywhere. I also agree with this view. And uh, it's uh, interesting, however, to see the general, you know, regional landscape in, because we, you've already started touching bases upon the borders and, and uh, what's happening at the broader region in general. That's uh, probably <laughs> a big question that I'm about to ask, but what sort of relationship does Estonia have with uh, its neighbors in terms of foreign policy and membership in institutions other than the EU? Yeah, you're right. That That is a big one. Um, and I will do my best to answer this one succinctly. Looking immediately regionally um, in the Baltic region, relations between Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are, are quite good. 
generally these three countries are, are pretty closely aligned um, on, on sort of coordination of foreign policy and cooperation. Yeah, I mean, beyond EU membership, all three are members of, of NATO. Involvement in the Three Seas Initiative. These three countries formed um, a Baltic bubble during COVID in and around May when, when things started to sort of open up again. It was these three countries that immediately opened their borders to each other again for travel as reopening sort of took place after that first COVID lockdown. I mean, I think there's also a, a sort of common understanding of potential Russian aggression in these three states that is, I mean, quite, quite coordinated or quite closely aligned, particularly in the wake of the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. I think wariness of sort of Russia's compatriot policy of Russian diasporas outside of the Russian Federation's borders was quite worrisome for Estonia and Latvia, but as, as well as, as uh, Lithuania. Um, and so there were coordinated efforts, um, particularly through NATO, on exercises to coordinate and, and protect against uh, potential uh, Russian aggression should that unfold. I mean, relations with Finland across the Baltic Sea between Finland and Estonia are also quite good. I mean, there's this historic closeness between these countries on um, the sort of shared linguistic cultural grounds as some of the only Finno-Ugric language speaking countries in Europe. And yeah, that, that relationship is quite politically significant and close and positive. I mean, despite the ECRA attacks on Santa Marin, and there were, there, I mean, there were some sort of tensions or I guess just maybe disillusionment, I guess you could say, um, surrounding non-reciprocated access during, during COVID. Um, you had higher rates of infection in Estonia than in, in Finland. And so there was quarantine periods um, required going back into Finland and not into Estonia that I guess sort of led to some, some disillusionment from, from some, but I mean, by and large, this relationship is overwhelmingly positive. You've seen more recently um, the invitation for Finland to join the Estonian X-Road system, that sort of backbone for e-governance. Um, and there's always just sort of continued, um, continued relations going on here. Now, that being said, turning to the East, um, relations are much poorer. <laughs> um, talking about uh, the Russian Federation here, I mean, there's an obvious weariness um, of Russia amongst predominantly ethnic Estonians following the Soviet occupation. I mean, that was an experience that is very traumatic in the memories of, of most Estonians that lived it. There have been sort of continued post-Soviet tensions with the negotiation of the withdrawal of Soviet troops, which didn't actually happen until 1994. You still had Soviet troops stationed in Estonia. 2007, you had a real deterioration of relations between uh, Estonia and Russia with events surrounding the Bronze Soldier. Um, so it was a Red Army memorial that was um, to be moved from central Tallinn, um, Estonia's capital city, to a military cemetery on the outskirts of town. And as a result, you had um, massive protests in the capital. You had one protester, a uh, pro-Russian protester, who was killed in the protests that have been sort of deemed Bronze Knight um, after the Bronze Soldier. And then you had cyber attacks. You had um, as I mentioned, the, the government, the news media, and the banking sites that went down. And it was, it was I mean, there was heavy involvement of the pro-Kremlin youth group NASHI, 
um, and potential possible instruction or support from the government. It's really quite unclear because the Russian government refused to cooperate um, into the investigation into the cyber attacks that the Estonian government carried out. Um, so there's still a lot of unknowns surrounding this. But I mean, on top of that, you have um, sort of increased wariness alongside Latvia, Lithuania and, and, and other, other neighbours of, of Russian aggression following that 2014 annexation of Crimea. I mean, that compatriot policy, as I mentioned, is particularly worrisome in the regions of Estonia where there is particularly sort of high concentration of ethnic Russians. One area where this is really played out um, is in Narva, in uh, Ida Viruma. Um, so it's one of the, the eastern counties of Estonia where you have a really high concentration of, of ethnic and linguistic uh, Russians. Um, this region had an unsuccessful separatist movement in 1993 in the immediate wake of, of Estonia's restoration of independence. And so that has been a particular source of, of tension surrounding um, sort of Russian aggression. And, and as a result, you've had um, a large number of NATO exercises in, in the wider Baltic region, um, in the other Baltic states, in Poland. And I guess that's maybe a good segue into membership in institutions. Um, I mean, NATO membership is key. I, that, was, that was what was missing um, in Ukraine with, with Crimea and the Donbass region. Article 5 couldn't, couldn't be triggered with, with Russian aggression there, but, but it could um, on the occasion of Russian aggression in the Baltic states and indeed um, in Estonia. So, I mean, that, that membership is, is quite, quite critical to Estonia's sort of continued security. I mean, both, both the EU and NATO membership were quite key for Estonia after its independence was restored. I mean, it's also member of the OECD, and more recently, um, President Kristi Kaljulaid has been put up for the role of, of Secretary General, potentially, in the OECD. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the UN as a big one. I mean, Estonia joined very shortly after restoring its independence. But more recently, I mean, it's been a, a non-permanent member of the, the UN Security Council since the start of the year, and, and held the rotating presidency of the Security Council in May, um, where, you know, a lot of these ideas that we've been talking about were key priorities, cyber and digital issues, um, obviously COVID-19 as it was unfolding. Uh, the 75th anniversary of the Second World War coincided with holding this rotating presidency, but also, you know, issues of, of transparency and, and respect for international law within, within the, EU, uh, the UN. Um, these were sort of key ideas that were priorities for, for Estonia as they held that, that rotating presidency. In terms of cybersecurity, I mean, the UN, the open-ended working group and the group of governmental experts, I mean, those have been significant for you know, the regulation of, of international regulation of cyberspace, um, although it hasn't been yet uh, a wholly effective uh, undertaking. That's a membership which is both significant and a place where, where Estonia sort of, I guess, gets to flex its um, sort of cyber and digital savvy. I mean, you've got the, the Global Commission on Security and Cyberspace, which was previously chaired by an Estonian, Marina Kalerand, who's now a member of European Parliament for the Social Democrats, but was previously Estonia's foreign minister. Um, she was the ambassador to the Russian Federation during the uh, 2007 cyber attacks. Um, so, I mean, there is, there is large um, sort of representation within sort of institutions where Estonia gets to really uh, particularly show its, its cyber savvy. But yeah, I mean, Estonia is really, it's a digital powerhouse in its own, but it's, at the end of the day, it's still 
a small state and that that smallness is really magnified in, in more traditional forms of aggression on top of cyber um, incursions. So it's, it's maintaining these, these relationships with its neighbors as positively as it, as it can, while also, you know, reaping the benefits of, of membership in these international alliances or, or organizations, um, because it really is, it, it's a two-way street. Estonia gains a lot, but it also also brings quite a lot to the table within these these organizations. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, <laughs> this is probably something a bit uh, geeky, but yet funny. Smallness sometimes is what states make of it in, in more constructivist terms. Uh, it's uh, indeed there is uh, this sort of. Uh, uh, downside in terms of more traditional concerns when it comes to arsenal, uh, military personnel, and so on, and when it comes to defending the country. But at the same time, it is a digital powerhouse, as you said, and it has a lot of things to bring to the table. Definitely. So, yeah. Um, right. So, Logan, this has been a very exciting discussion. I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, everything that we've discussed for this episode you've shared some rather interesting thoughts with us and clearly you're very knowledgeable of the subject so uh, thank you again so much for taking the time to do this and i wish you all the best with your work and research thank you very much i really appreciate the the opportunity to to share some of my thoughts and and chat about all the really interesting things going on in estonia